Hello and welcome back to Over My Dead Pod. I am Holly Spear. This is Kate Carter. And I'm Kylie Colwell. Today's my episode, and I think Kate and Kylie already know this one. Kylie said it was one of her favorites, so I'm happy to be doing it today. It's one of my favorites, too. It's a really creepy, just weird case that had... I heard about it. The first time I heard about it, I couldn't stop thinking about it just because it's so creepy. So, yeah, I guess we will jump right in. Girl Scouts of America began on March 12th in 1912. Juliet... Daisy Gordon organized the first 18 girl troop meeting in Savannah, Georgia. Since then, it has grown to 3.7 million members, and girls can now join from kindergarten through high school. So we all probably know what the Girl Scouts are, but for those who don't know, Girl Scouts are an all-girls club that's centered around community and friendship. Girls join at the young age and earn badges and awards for community service and through raising money. So like Girl Scout cookies, obviously. One of the most exciting activities for the Scouts is the camping trips. So if you sell enough cookies, you get to go on the camping trip is the whole, whole ordeal. So for many girls, this was their first overnight camping experience. Girls packed up their little bags for summer camp where they will stay in tents and sit around the campfire and tell scary stories, hike, and fish. The girls will load up with all their friends on the bus to travel to their camping spot. The most exciting part is getting there and just seeing who you're rooming with. This is where lasting friendships are made. Um, I know I had my first overnight camp in probably fifth grade, and I was just like very excited to stay up late with a bunch of girls. I didn't really go to camp. Like I didn't go to camp. This was like a school camp, like an overnight school camp. I didn't go to camp either. I went to 4-H camp like every summer. So I'm like jealous. I'm jealous of people who went to camp. Me Me too. I thought it was so cool. So I remember like kind of feeling grown up because it's kind of their first time away from home for a lot of people. But we had older camp counselors. I thought they were so cool. We did the, you know, same old thing, fish, talked around the campfire, made chants, all the things. So for Denise Milner, this was a new and intimidating venture. She had never gone to sleepaway camp before. Denise was 10 years old and would be the first and only black camper there. Denise is a straight-A student and has already been admitted to Tulsa School for Gifted Students. Denise was scared to leave her family for the first time, but her mother encouraged her to go, telling her that if she didn't like it, all she had to do was contact her mom and she'd come back and pick her up. And Denise decided that she would go ahead and give it a try. Another girl, age nine, Michelle Gousset, would also be attending camp that year. Michelle, however, had attended the camp before. She had attended the year before and loved it. Michelle was shy, but very athletic and had a love for plants. Michelle made sure that her mother would take care of her very favorite African violets while she was gone, and she packed up her things. Lori Farmer, another bright girl. She would be the youngest at camp at eight years old. She was excited. Her family hugged her and told her that they loved her and saw her off to camp. All of the Girl Scouts were getting ready to go to Camp Scott in Mays County, Oklahoma. Camp Scott was located at the bottom of the Ozark Mountains, and occupied 410 acres and had a creek running through it. It was surrounded by a deeply dense wooded forest. Camp Scott had been the summer retreat for thousands of girls for about 50 years, and the camp had been operated by the Girl Scouts since 1982. Generations of girls had gone through this specific camp. Sunday, June 12th, 
1977, all the scouts loaded onto the bus at the Girl Scout headquarters and said goodbye to their families. As the girls approached the camp, the children crowded to the windows of the bus to catch a glimpse of their home for the next two weeks. Separate campsites were divided throughout the camp and were named after Native American tribes. Lori, Michelle, and Denise waited, passing all the sites, Osage, Seminole, Choctaw, Cherokee, Wapaw, and then finally Camp Kiowa. The site was on the outer edge of the camp and the furthest back. 27 girls would be in the Kiowa unit. Once all the girls had unloaded, they found their assigned tents. The tents had canvas siding that sat on wooden platforms and held four cots. The furthest tent from the counselors was tent number eight. It was the most isolated tent in the camp. This was the tent of Lori Farmer, Michelle Gousset, and Denise Milner. There was originally supposed to be a fourth camper in the unit. However, due to a clerical error, the fourth camper had been assigned to a different tent. Counselor Michelle Hoffman would say that she could tell Denise was nervous. Denise was already feeling homesick, and she was unsure about wanting to go through with the camp. The counselor specifically remembered Denise and wanted her to have a good time and have a good first experience. She walked Denise to her tent and introduced her to her other tent mates, Lori and Michelle. The girls did not know each other, but seemed to immediately hit it off. After dinner, the girls got comfortable in their tents because, unfortunately, the very first night, there would be a pretty significant thunderstorm. Since there was nothing to do, the girls sat down in their tents and wrote letters back to home. The counselor that had originally walked Denise back to her tent returned to tell the girls goodnight, but she found that they were already asleep when she got there. That night, a counselor in the unit called the Comanche unit stared into the dark night through the dense trees when she noticed a dim light in the woods just behind the tree line. She knew that behind the tree line was just miles and miles of wooded area, and no one should have been back there. Immediately, the counselor thought it must be some of the scouts sneaking out. The counselor shone her light in the woods directly at the dim light, and the light suddenly went dark. A few moments later, however, the light reappeared and began to move. The light moved in the direction of what happened to be the Kiowa unit. Not being able to figure out where the light was coming from, the counselor went to bed. Around midnight, counselor Carla Wilhite heard some campers giggling around the bathrooms before she was about to fall asleep. She walked them back to their tents. This was typical of the first night at camp. Again, around 1.30 a.m., Wilhite was woken up by more giggling girls in tent six. She took her flashlight and shined it towards their tent, assuming they would get the hint. She yelled at them that it was time to go to sleep. Wilhite and another counselor ended up having to walk back to the tent to tell the girls to settle down and go to sleep. It was at this time that she heard a noise coming from the woods. She described the noise as kind of a moaning, like a cross between a frog and a bullhorn. It was low and guttural was the word that they used to describe, which I think is just like the creepiest word to, I don't know, low and guttural. It was intermittent and not continuous. She would say that she did not believe the sound was human, but it was also not like any animal she had ever heard before. Again, she went to check what was going on. She could hear the distant voices of girls still awake in their tents and thought it likely may have been just a girl playing a prank. Carla went to bed, but continued to hear the noise throughout the night. She ended up waking up her tent mate who said it just sounded like animal noises to her and that she was gonna go back to sleep. Around the same time, a camper in tent seven would see a light approaching their tent. The light got closer and eventually flooded the tent and a male figure stood in the entryway and then disappeared into the darkness, closing the flat behind him. One camper heard a scream in the night. So this camp is supposed to be surrounded by miles and miles of woods, but I kind of imagine that 
at camps like this, girls probably are just like playing pranks. And when you hear that someone is hearing something or like seeing something, you might not immediately believe them just because they think they're so isolated. So I don't know. I mean, yeah. like when I was in camp, I mean, you could kind of see like the little cabins that we were all in. I did not realize how far apart all these campsites were at this camp. And then like the map you have shows like the counselor's tent and the victim's tent are 50 yards away. And it looks like all the other campsites look super far away. Yeah. And then kids at camp. Yeah. We used to play pranks all the time when we would try and scare people. Yeah. We would sneak into other cabins and grab people's feet while they were sleeping. Yeah. I didn't, but... Yeah. So, I mean, I can't really fault the counselors for thinking that this is probably just the girl. I mean, I'm sure it's happened millions of times and, you know, to think it's the girls and go to bed is not that abnormal to me. So, around 6 a.m., the same counselor that had heard the noises outside, Carla Wilhite, would wake up and walk to the showers to catch a hot shower before all of the other campers awoke. As she was walking to the trail of the showers, Carla saw a sleeping bag that had been tied up. She thought it was likely some stray luggage that had been delivered late. But as she got closer, she saw a little girl laying on top of one of the sleeping bags. Horrified, Carla ran for help. The camp director and nurse returned. Word spread that there was a dead child. Counselors scrambled back to their assigned tents to check on their girls. It was discovered that all three girls from tent eight were missing. The camp officials came upon two more sleeping bags. These bags were filled with something and were zipped all the way to the top or tied. I can't remember if they were zipped or tied, but they were closed all the way to the top. One of the male camp counselors approached the bag and picked it up. Feeling the weight of the bag, he set it to the ground and without opening it, felt through the bag and determined what everyone was dreading, that it was filled with a human body. It would be discovered that Lori and Michelle were inside of their sleeping bags. All of the girls in tent eight had been killed and drug out about 150 yards from their tent, and they were in or on their sleeping bags when they were drug out. Immediately, Girl Scouts were evacuated and packed onto the buses and police were called. The other girls were not told about the murders in the moment. They were confused as they drove back to the headquarters they came from. Most of the parents got word of the murders, but they did not know which girls had been the victims of the vicious attack. So. One by one, the confused girls exited the bus as the parents waited to see if they would see the face of their child. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations headed the investigation and the capital of the Cherokee Nation arrived at the scene as well. Sheriff Lynn Weaver of the Mays County Sheriff Department was assigned to this case. It would be described as a crime scene that no one had ever seen before. Investigators were faced with a terribly gruesome scene. The bodies of three little girls had been found roughly 150 yards from their tent on the side of a trail, along with their sleeping bags. The trail ran along the side of the Kiowa unit, positioned in a semicircle tucked in the furthest left part of the camp. Nearest the trail was the counselor's tent. Autopsy would reveal that Lori and Michelle were killed by blunt force trauma to the head. Denise had been beaten, but also strangled with a ligature. All three girls had been assaulted. Investigators would conclude that the attacks had taken place inside of the tent and the bodies were moved to the trail. Lori was laying in her sleeping bag that had been tied up. Michelle was also in her sleeping bag and her hands were behind her back. Denise was the only one not in her sleeping bag. She was bound with tape and carefully sewn gags. However, there was 
It's evidence that Lori and Michelle have been killed inside the tent and that Denise might have been drugged through the woods or a trail and then been killed outside of the tent while the others were killed inside. Um, I do have a question. Yeah. So we know someone heard a scream. Mm-hmm. I think it's just from like one girl. If someone, you know, not really break in, it's just like a fabric tent, mm-hmm. come inside, assault and kill one of the girls. And the other two, I don't know. I guess I mean, if, one they of just, them, if it was blunt force trauma. Yeah, it would have been, been super yeah, quick. It's hard to believe that you wouldn't hear or even the girls in the other tent would not wake up and run out. I mean, I don't know. In my head, it seems so easy to think about like what would happen, but yeah. I guess but. also if they were asleep, it would take a second to like register. Right, the- especially if it's blunt force trauma. I mean, for a kid, you just swack them once, they're gone. Then you yeah. just go to the next girl's. Poor Denise, the last one, probably got her mouth covered and was dragged out, you know? So that's just, because it is kids, yeah. I feel like it's easier. Yeah. 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 But also, how many stories do we know where, well, there's a huge story where we know, where we don't understand how people or neighbors or roommates don't hear others screaming. Right. You know? So, like, it's hard to imagine any of it, to be honest. Yeah. So, the investigators concluded that the murders had been planned. Tent 8 was the most isolated tent, and the storm would have covered the killer's tracks. The killer entered through the back of the tent and struck the children while they slept. Tent 8 was covered in blood. The killer attempted to clean up the crime scene by wiping the blood from the mattress with towels. There are footprints inside and outside of the tent, but they differed in sizes. I don't, I wasn't clear on if the investigators knew if these were footprints made during the crime or if these were footprints like made in the dirt by like the campers. I kind of assumed that they were made by the campers like with dirt and stuff because it, it said been, they differed in sizes. Yeah, it could have been anyone. There's a lot of people there. Yeah. And they, they don't realize anything's going on until, yeah. Yeah. So I was like unsure if it was bloody footprints and obviously that's happened during the crime but if there's dirt you know out beside the tent wouldn't really know and it wasn't none of the sources that i found were clear on specific none of them specifically described the footprints so duct tape cords and flashlights were left behind on the lens of the flashlight there was a fingerprint investigators would hear about the strange noises that were heard by the campers and a nearby landowner had heard quote quite a bit of traffic on the road near the camp between 2 and 3 a.m. Also, to rewind, it would be discovered that less than two months before the murders, Camp Scott was used for an on-site training session for the counselors. A counselor attending discovered that her belongings had been ransacked, including a box of donuts. The donut box that she left was empty when she got back, so they had been stolen, and inside of the empty donut box was a handwritten note Stating in capital letters, we are on a mission to kill three little girls in tent one. What? Yeah. Ooh. Excuse me. That happened two months before the kids showed up? Yes. And this was told to the police after the murders? Yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. To be fair, I would also think that would be a prank. I'd probably tell somebody that, like, it would be known that I got this letter. No, yeah, I would tell whoever's in charge, but I wouldn't think to, like, tell the police about it. Yeah. And also, if they said in tent one, you can't really tell which one's tent one and which one's tent eight. You know, like, they're just yeah. they're on opposite ends, so. 
in the reverse order, you might think that was 10-1. I would think it's a joke by the donut box, though, so that's... Yeah. I'd be like, damn it. Yeah. Yeah, like, you're gonna play a murder and steal my donuts? Yeah. I mean, this was back in the 70s, but I think today... I think that would be something that they would have had to take seriously where back then they would say oh it's just a you know chalk it up to a crank but today i like knowing what we know and knowing you know like the liability of everything i think that that would be something that they would have to take more seriously but back then they really didn't so the director of the camp session treated the note as a prank and it was discarded next on june 16th investigators found what they believed to be the murder weapon Investigators then brought out dogs to Camp Scott and located a cave two miles from the camp. Inside of the cave, they found flashlight batteries, glasses, and photos of women. On the wall of the cave, it read, The killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. 77-6-17. Another very eerie thing is that it was later discovered that many of the campers claimed that their eyeglasses were missing from their tent. On June 23, 1977, police named Jean Leroy Hart a suspect. Hart was convicted of burglary, rape, and kidnapping. He escaped from jail in 1973 and had been on the run for four years. Police suspected that a local Cherokee community had been sheltering him ever since. This was Hart's second escape from jail. It was said that the photos in the cave linked Hart to the killings. Apparently, the photos were linked to Hart because he had once worked in a photo lab at the prison, and I guess maybe he took the photos with him. Somehow, those were linked to him, and it's not clear exactly how other than that, but Hart was a native of the Locust Grove and a Cherokee Indian. He was an expert woodsman, and he had many family members living in the area. He could have easily survived in the cave and in the vast woods around Camp Scott. Police announced that he was the suspect and the largest manhunt in Oklahoma history begins. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations got a tip about Hart and 10 months later on April 6, 1978, police found Hart's home in Cookson Hills. It was an old dilapidated shack and it set 50 miles from the camp. Hart had been hiding among fellow Cherokee members and he was arrested. The capital murder of Hart began. This was obviously a very high-profile case, and the media would swarm the doors of the courthouse daily. When the defender met Hart, he remembered Hart saying, I want you to know one thing. I didn't kill those Girl Scouts. And a population of the community believed him. Supporters raised money for his defense and organized a dinner to raise money and wore t-shirts that read, Stop the Mays County Railroad, which was some kind of somehow supposed to signify the community's belief that Hart was being scapegoated by the police, like railroaded maybe? I don't know. The Cherokee Tribal Council even donated $12,500 to his defense. During the trial, the prosecution rested its case on items found in the cave, which included the eyeglasses, the roll of tape that matched the tape found at the scene, and photos linked to Hart. They argued that Hart's eyeglasses were the stolen glasses from the camp, like the glasses that he was wearing were the ones stolen from the camp, and that the hair found on the duct tape resembled his. There was DNA evidence found at the scene, but DNA testing would not be introduced until the 1980s, and the hair evidence had been discredited as a forensic method. There was also a footprint found at the scene that did not match Hart. Hart's legal team claimed that Hart's glasses were from a previous rape victim of his and that all the other evidence had been planted by investigators. 
This is when an alternative suspect emerged. Witness Dean Boyd testified that she had seen a nervous man at her diner 15 miles from Camp Scott on the morning of the killings, who she identified as a man named William Stevens, who was another convicted rapist who had been seen on the Camp Scott campgrounds days before June 13th. Ben Stevens' friend, Duane Peters, claimed that he loaned his flashlight found at the scene and that Stevens had admitted to killing him. So then you have the friend of Stevens saying that the flashlight that is being used in evidence was the one that he loaned his friend, Stevens, and that Stevens had admitting to killing the girls. On March 30, 1979, a jury of 12 deliberated for only five minutes before finding Jean Leroy Hart innocent. Then, on June 4, 1979, he died of a heart attack in prison. So yeah, just to hit you with that. Um, Wait. <laughs> yeah. Reverse? Wait, he was found innocent? Found innocent. The jury deliberated for five minutes. five minutes. And then while he was still in jail or prison, he died. Yes. So he was on, He was in prison because, I mean, he was an escaped. He escaped from prison. He would have so been in prison anyway. Obviously, yeah. yeah. Back in prison. But he was not convicted. Does this, wait, do you keep, is this story still going? Is there more? Because was he innocent? Other than the photos found in the cave, there really wasn't that much to link him definitively to the murders. This is also pre-DNA. Yeah, this is pre-DNA. So they have a footprint that doesn't match him. And they have, you know, a flashlight with a fingerprint on it that they can't test. And they have tape, which has a hair that kind of looks like his hair, but can't be introduced in evidence. So basically all they have is a photograph that they're saying could have come from the prison that he worked at. Okay, I gotta ask, the people in the jury, were they maybe perhaps part of the same tribe as him? Is that why they just, I don't know. Deliberated know, for only five minutes? I don't know. I It's possible. I mean, I know there was six men, six women, but... Okay, I have known this story. This was one of my, I really enjoyed this story. I've seen so many documentaries on it. But it never hit, I guess I just never knew that he wasn't guilty. I don't know how I didn't I, have well, that in my head. We, there is there is a little bit more. So. Okay, keep going, keep going. Yeah. Keep going. Okay, so although Hart was not convicted at this time, he was still an escaped convict and would be going to prison to serve over 300 years for his previous crime of rape, kidnapping, and burglary. So that is a hefty was, sentence. It, it was this is also the second time he's escaped from jail so this case sets still until 1989 that is until dna testing of samples found at the scene however they were unable to rule out heart because the test was inconclusive so i think that what i read was he had the majority of the markers saying that it was his dna but it was not definitive they could not for sure say that it was him but he had the majority of the markers that said that it was. So at this time that they're testing the DNA, he's already dead. Okay, we already have some circumstantial evidence with the photographs in the cave, mm-hmm. blah, blah, hair that resembles his. The DNA can't rule him out unless he has a very close relative who did it. We don't have anyone else to pin it to. Yeah, exactly. but you can't say it's him. You can't, you can't, you can't yeah. say it's him, but like, there's no one 
else you can say it is. Kylie, you, you and I have the same hair. Like if somebody found a piece of hair, they'd be like, ooh, this is Kylie's. And it was me the whole time. You know, like that's not, mm-hmm. I'm sure. No, but the footprint just... didn't match him though, right? There's other right. footprints. And I mean, we don't know, again, we don't know if it was blood or dirt or, you know, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure. So how did they, how did they not, I know that DNA, okay. I know that DNA, when this case happened, DNA evidence wasn't a part, wasn't around yet. That came like 10 years later, but they probably didn't store the DNA evidence either because they didn't know it was coming in the future. But like there was so much blood according to what I've read in the tents and stuff like that. So you'd think there's fingerprints, DNA everywhere. So I guess they just didn't store it, not know it, you know, like, cause why would you? So they, uh, they did, I mean, they tested it later, so they did have a little bit. So by 2008, DNA testing had advanced, but the FBI retested the sample and found that it was too degraded to create a profile. So they tested it once, and we know that they try to hold out as long as they can until testing is as advanced as they think, you know, because once you test it, you can't test retested. it again, or you use up your test, you use up your sample. So. They tested it once, it was inconclusive. In 2008, they tested it again, and the sample was too degraded to know anything. So it goes on. Sheriff Reed spent his childhood in Mays County and was just a boy when the murders occurred. When he grew older, he became an investigator and began taking a second look at this case. Reed said, when I give my word, that means something to me. I gave them my word. I didn't know what I could do, but I'd look at it. One year after Reed began re-examining the case, he and the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations consulted with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, where the case was assessed by 23 homicide investigators, FBI behavioral analysts, and profilers. Every one of them agreed that Gene Leroy Hart had committed the murders. The investigators suggested to the family that the DNA be analyzed. The testing would cost $300,000, money the sheriff's office didn't have. However, the residents of Mays County raised every cent of it. In 2022, authorities released the news that the results of the existing DNA evidence which strongly suggested Hart's involvement ruled out every suspect except him. Unless something new comes up, something brought to light that we are not aware of, I am convinced that where I am sitting, Hart is guilty and is involved in this case. So the families of Lori, Denise, and Michelle would go on to unsuccessfully sue the Girl Scout Council in 1985. The Farmer family would go on to open a Parents of Murdered Children's chapter in Oklahoma. Part of the civil case that I just talked about was rested on the note that was found the counselor's weekend before the Girl Scout camp, where the note stated that they would kill three girls in tent one. The family said that obviously the scouts should not have allowed the girls to come to the camp, However, some girls had admitted to writing the note as a prank, and the case was unsuccessful against the Girl Scout Council. Camp Scott would shut its gates and never welcome anyone again. And that is the case of the Girl Scout murders. Are you okay, Kate? I'm just pissed. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm going to say, if 23 investigators say that he did it, then you know what? He probably did it. Um... So we'll give it to them there. He was an awful man anyways. He died of a heart attack, good riddance, you know, blah, blah, blah. 303 years, he wouldn't have survived, obviously. But the parents unsuccessfully sued? That's really sucks. 
Like yeah. that is, there should be, I mean, obviously this was seventies, a lot, a lot has changed now with people going to camp, especially when it comes to Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, stuff like that. But policies wise at camp, you'd want your kids to be safe. And there's a lot of things that happened that night that maybe the counselors should have checked in a little bit more about, but we weren't there. So it's just, I feel really bad for the families. Like that's horrible. I guess it would be very hard to make a case against you know, the organization and the people there because it was an outside person that came in. You know, if it, like, it was a counselor that yeah. they had hired, I think that would be a different story. What a case. What a case. Good job, Holly. Yeah, it's a creepy case for sure. And um, like we talked about before um, this started, there's a famous, I think she's on Broadway. Is that right, Kylie? She's a... Yeah, Kristen Chenoweth. Movie yes. star, Broadway star. Huge. I think she has like an EGOT. Like she Huge. has all of the awards, right? Very nice. Yeah, she was supposed to go to the camp and did not go because she was sick that week and her parents made her stay home. And she is in the, is it an HBO documentary? She is on Hulu. Hulu? Okay. She's in a documentary about the Girl Scout murders because she would have, she would have been there. So do we know if she was supposed to be in tent eight? Was she the clerical error? I don't was know. She the clerical error that was supposed to be in tent eight. So yeah, possible. So it's called Keeper of the Ashes, the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders. What a good case. Good job, Holly. Thank you, guys. So that is a case of the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders. We are going to jump into our segment of overtime. We're going to let Kate go first. Oh, girls. Okay. Do I have a story for you today? So this has been circulating for like two or three weeks now, I would say, maybe two weeks. Um, I live down on the East Coast of Florida. Kylie lives over on the West coast of Florida. So anything Florida related, crazy state. Um, we're not natives. We can say that, but I am a lot of things. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's true. Sorry. I forgot about that girl. You were somewhat in North Carolina too. So I call you both, but, um, anything Florida related is always crazy, always interesting, but something happened very close to where I live recently in a town called Delray beach. So on July 21st, there was a call to police down in Delray that three suitcases um, were floating in the intercoaster waterway. And, you know, some residents or somebody on a boat had called and said like, hey, not normal to have suitcases just floating in the water. Um, it's a very residential area, very popular, beautiful, gorgeous, whatever. So the police come, they get the suitcases out of the water, boom, dismembered body. It turns out that it was all belonging to one woman in the three suitcases. Her body had been dismembered and put into these suitcases at the time when they found this. Cause I remember seeing the article and I sent it to the girls and I, in the back of my head, I was like, this is crazy. This doesn't happen that often. Well, they said the body wasn't decomposed that much. I hate to put the bad picture in your head, but they were able to identify right away that it was a woman. And 
there was a sketch artist that came out with a sketch. They said that it was most likely a Hispanic woman who, according to her dental records, was like in her 30s or 40s. Well, well, well. On August 2nd, the Delray Beach police arrested 78-year-old William Lowe and charged him of first-degree murder and abuse of a dead body. Turns out, William had dismembered his wife of 15 years, 80-year-old Adil Barbosa Fontes. Wait, wait. So they estimated she was, what, 30s, 40s? Yes. And it turns out, from her dental records, and it turns out Adil Barbosa Fontes was 80 years old. She had really, really good teeth. Her dental records stated that she was probably, you know, like you can, well, people probably, I don't know if people know this, but when you have a stray dog, you tell their age by their dental, like the better the teeth are, the canines in the back, you can tell their age just based off of their teeth. Okay. okay. Fun fact. Yes. Horses have like this line on one of their teeth and depending on how long the line is, you can tell how old they are. Yes. So that's multiple animals and species. That's how you tell age. And Mm -hmm. with humans, if it's, you're not getting dental records, like from an actual dentist office, you can usually kind of guesstimate how old the person is based off of the condition of their teeth. So Adele Barbosa Fontes, 80 years old, they had said that she was in her thirties or forties, completely wrong. But I had a blast explaining this case to my husband today because it is just so juicy and interesting, the little details about it. The medical examiner went on to say that um, she had been shot in the head and that was how she passed away. But investigators put two and two together within two weeks of finding the suitcases for these following reasons. Okay. So the dental records from the decomposed body, which wasn't that badly decomposed, turned out to be a dill. Well, on the outside of one of the suitcases was an airline barcode sticker that had her name on it. You know, like when you go to the airport and they just stick a little tag on your bag. I just ripped one off the bag just now. You have to take them off every time you go to the airport to go on your next flight because they put a new one on. So the husband, William, just never decided to like mistake them or what. He just didn't look at the suitcase. So her name was on the suitcase. Multiple people, this is another part, multiple people went to the police after the news covered the story of finding the suitcases saying that they had seen a man in his 60s or 70s on the dock where the suitcases were found multiple days in a row, just watching the water. Well, police took this information, went down to the dock and found security footage from multiple cameras that show 78-year-old William Lowe on multiple days for multiple hours, standing on the dock where the suitcases were found, pushing the suitcases further into the water because they kept coming back to the dock. Like he didn't put anything in the suitcases to make them go down in the water. They were just like floating. And so with the waves, when boats go by, things get pushed on the docks or towards dock. So he'd like throw the suitcases out and they'd just keep coming back to him. So he would like- People are so dumb. People are so dumb. I can't dumb. So he would poke them with a stick to try to get them to go further out. This is on camera. While at one point, William goes down one of the dock ladders and push to push one of the suitcases further into the water, scrapes his leg, boom, blood stain on the dock. So they have DNA evidence now. And then this is my favorite part. 
when police went with a search warrant to William Lowe's apartment in Delray Beach, there was no answer to the door. So they opened up the door because they had a search warrant and they saw William trying to escape through the back window, 78-year-old man. And when asking where he was going, he said that he was trying to find his keys to a storage unit. Well, that makes no sense. So they enter the apartment. They get him back into the apartment. The apartment is covered in blood. The bitch didn't even try to clean. And then it turns out the storage unit that he was talking about, they go to the storage unit. (laughs) It was a real place. And there's chainsaw in there with all of the DNA evidence of his wife on the chainsaw still. So he just never cleaned anything. I mean, this dude... I hate to say that I enjoyed reading everything about this case, but like he did everything wrong, everything, wrong. everything possible wrong. And how sad that Adele Barbosa Fontes at 80 years old, that's the way that she goes, you know, like, especially for her family, like that's awful, but good riddance, William Lowe's like that is just, yeah, I'm glad he's such an idiot, an idiot. I mean, everything possible he did wrong. So that all wrapped up within two weeks. I thought that was going to be like a whole freaking few years of a case kind of thing. I was planning on doing it on the podcast at some point, but today I found out all of this information and they got him. They're charging him. He's 78. He'll, he'll die in prison. So good fucking riddance. Ain't that a story? That's right. You know what? I don't think it's rare that when you have cases with bodies or pieces of bodies and suitcases that they don't tie it back to the owner of the suitcase. Isn't Right. Yeah. Well, like, yeah. well, even like Cameron, my husband said, he was like, wouldn't you just go and buy new suitcases to put the body in? And I'm like, yes, this, you but would. Then they would look at receipts of people who have recently bought suitcases or if they somehow tied to you. They'll say, if you recently bought a suitcase. Yeah, but I ain't putting the one, I'm not putting somebody's body in my suitcase that I have my luggage tag still on. Apparently some people are. And they don't remove the tags or like my suitcases have like the little plastic insert in the back with like my name and phone address, number. phone number. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't remove those. And that's, that was literally how she, they knew who it was is because it had her name on it. Yeah. And then also there's like, if you're putting your clothes and belongings in there for however long you have a suitcase, DNA. how much DNA is in the suitcase. I mean, he just, he really thought through nothing. <sighs> it's that, it's that old age. Yeah, got to him. But so that's my story for today. So I was hoping by now to have an update on Andre Thomas. I think it was the last episode we did, the man mm-hmm. on death row in Texas. I've had my Google alerts on, and I'll say every day I get an email from Google about Andre Thomas. There's a man named Andre Thomas who's charged with murder in Jamaica, not him. So I have not received any word or news updates on that. The defense was supposed to file arguments to halt his execution by July 5th. I have no idea if that happened or not. I would assume so. I would assume as as well. His attorney has been like in the news, like advocating for him. So I'm assuming that was filed, but haven't heard any updates from that. But I do have an update on Rudy Farias. Uh, I talked about him before. He was reported missing in 2015. And then in June, they found him at a church in pretty bad shape, wouldn't really speak to anyone. And like, as soon as the word got out that Rudy was found, all of the neighbors, I think it was literally like the day after I talked yeah. about it on the episode, I sent Kate and Holly 
all these TikToks of like all these neighbors coming forward. They're like, what do you mean Rudy was missing? Like we were hanging out with him last week. Like he was chilling in the neighborhood. It's like he was on my house. (laughs) What do you mean he's been missing? Everyone was so confused. They're like, we've known him for years, blah, blah, blah. So it turns out that Rudy's mom has basically been holding him captive in the house. She would, I mean, guess, let him out to like the neighbors. Apparently she would bring him to work with her, but she basically had like brainwashed him. He gave an interview this week saying he had like developed Stockholm syndrome. All this right? shit. Like you have to at that oh, point. Yeah. yeah. Um, so his mom's name is Janie Santana. Surprisingly, not facing any criminal charges. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, I don't know exactly what you would stick her with. Yeah. Kidna- uh, kidnapping? I don't know. Like, I feel like that is kidnapping of your own. Was it? We don't even know. But he was allowed to like go out. You would think kidnapping, but for we the don't age even- that he was missing, all of his neighbors saw him out and about. Like they would be like, yeah, he was hanging in the streets with us. So what I really want to know is how did no one see missing posters of this kid for eight years and not know that he was raped? there like well it's confusing I saw some reports he was going by a different name and then I saw some reports that he was going by the name of his dead brother who died like in a car accident a couple years before yeah also his dad Mm. took his own life a couple years I think it was like a year or two before Rudy went missing so I'm sure the mom was going through it I don't know why we obviously know he wasn't kidnapped but I don't know if he did like walk away or run away and then eventually come back and the mom didn't report that he came back or if well, that like, the entire it, thing was a lie. I have no yeah, idea. wasn't it like he went missing after taking his dogs for a walk? Yeah. And he but the dogs back. came back home. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm saying suspicious with his mom, but also in the nicest way possible, he is someone that you cannot miss identity wise. Like, I don't think I could just get him confused with someone else. No, but also he's just like, he was 17 when he went missing. Yeah, but That would he, be all over the news. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, so if you see a picture of him at 17 and he's, and he's being seen in the neighborhood, I don't know. This is just a weird, this is a weird case. You got to keep us updated. Oh, I will. Okay, so um, my update is from a case that we did. Kate did, right, Kate? Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Long Island serial killer, if you'll remember. I think it was episode 14. Um, So it's unsolved. There were multiple suspects and an unknown amount of victims, but we know of at least 10. Um, The update is on July 14th of this year, a 59-year-old local architect, Rex Hewerman, was arrested and charged with the murder of three women whose bodies were part of the Gilgo Beach deaths. Rex Hewerman lived nearby Mississippi Park and ran his own architect firm in Midtown Manhattan. He is also the prime suspect of a fourth woman's body. He has pled not guilty. Rex was connected via DNA, which police took from a leftover piece of pizza that Rex had eaten and thrown away in a public downtown most, New York trash can. That's the most New York thing I've ever heard. Yeah. I thought yeah. that was hilarious. That's great. That's great. 
Like it was his crust. They like took, he had a piece of pizza and like threw it away and it was his crust that they took evidence from. I'm oh. already suspicious of anyone who doesn't eat the crust. Right. I love the crust. Yeah. Love it. Favorite part. Yep. Murder. Okay. Around the same time, Gilgo Beach investigators will, were able to identify the body of Jane Doe number seven. The woman had been called the Fire Island Jane Doe and she was 36-year-old Karen Bergata. Karen was believed to have been working as an escort up until she went missing in 1996. But police do not currently believe that there is a link between Karen's death and the alleged Gilgo Beach killer Rex Hewerman. Ain't that crazy? Very. I read that in the article like a few days ago when they did like say who the Jane Doe was. And they were like, we don't have proof right now. And we don't think that Rex is connected. And I was like, this is, this is mind blowing. Cause this case in general could have been multiple people. Mm-hmm. That was one of the theories. Okay. I will say this is one of the cases I never thought I would be seen solved ever. Yeah. ever. And if you guys haven't listened to that episode, you need to, because there's so many different theories. And I remember the day that police arrested Rex, all of us, all three of us were texting each other, like going crazy. I also had my aunt up in New York sending me tons of articles and she's like, did you have him on your list? And I was like, no, he's a normal architect from Manhattan. Like he is a, he looks like a dad. Like it's a, he's still married. He's got kids. Like all of his neighbors were like, what? And boom, DNA evidence on at least three, three of the bodies. Uh, Wow. I feel, I will say DNA, man. It is a little weird that they identified the Fire Island victim right right after the arrest mm-hmm. like around the same time yeah and then i have because i want to know what evidence they had because you know like they're why. strategic about stuff like that i mean right and then to say that like rex most likely has nothing to do with her death which we always thought this could have been a two killer case not related to killer but because the the bodies are placed in different ways at different times different methods but I think it is weird that they announced Jane Doe right after Rex. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I'm very curious. I never thought this would be solved, to be honest. No, and I have seen some theories. Apparently he frequented like Atlantic City and mm. Fire Island. I know we talked about Atlantic City a little bit. Mm-hmm. Also, he frequented Vegas. And there's a couple similar crimes e. in the hmm. Vegas area. Yeah. Because we did talk about Atlantic City. One of the girls was from there, but they Mm -hmm. also had like two missing persons that was never, they were like, maybe this is related. We don't know. Right. Right. So I have seen the theory that they're just, okay, we can connect these few to him for sure. Right. We'll see if they stick. Yeah. No, I'm super excited. Yeah. These other ones, like circumstantial, it makes sense, but we can't exactly tie it to him. So we'll do those later. So that makes sense to me. Yeah. yeah. But we'll definitely keep everybody updated with this case because this is the fact that they even found someone to it. Huge. Big. Very. Yep. So we will keep you updated on that as well. And with that, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. If you want even more information, including photos and sources of the case, you can check out our blog, OverMyDeadPod.com. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you're listening to this and check out our social media at Over My Dead Pod. We will see you next time with another thrilling case. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.